Hello and welcome to Wine and Web 3. I'm Kelly Vero and today I'm joined by the legendary Dan Petrosky. He's a celebrated California winemaker, of course. In 2017, he was named by the San Francisco Chronicle as Winemaker of the Year. Dan is behind the powerhouse brand Massacan and revived the historically significant lock mead for nearly 15 years. Dan's a New Yorker and he received his BA in history from Columbia and MBA in NYU. I am so excited to be able to talk to him. And without any formal winemaking education, Dan's worked his way from growing grapes in Sicily to crafting some of the most revered California wines. Welcome, Dan. I'm here today with Dan Petrosky. He is, oh my gosh, what isn't he? He is an iconoclastic winemaker. Wow, that's like a really big word. What I don't like to do is kind of read out an entire spiel about what someone is, but I am a huge fan of yours, Dan, so you better tell us who you are. <laughs> I, don't, um, I don't typically describe myself as anything um, but a winemaker. Uh, uh, even in my email replies, it doesn't even say who I am. I just say Dan and Masakan. Um, I just... Yeah, I got. I was very fortunate to to have fallen in love with wine um, while I was living and working in New York City in publishing, and I had a corporate card to access you know great restaurants of the world in New York and great wine lists, um, and it kind of fell in love with uh, the stories behind them. And, and I set upon my own pathway to create my own story, which was you know quitting a ten year career at timing publishing company in New York and moving to Italy living in Sicily for a year, working on a vineyard, coming home, trying to be, you know, Italy's next brand ambassador in the United States, but I didn't know where that job existed. Um, so I ended up uh, just taking a, a continuation of uh, my stage in California as a, a kind of a harvest intern at Dumal, and that was like a six-month job that turned into a seller position at Larkmead, which is Napa Valley, and, and uh, producing Cabernet Sauvignon. But the, the, you know, the nostalgia and romance, and this is the reason why I, I love Web3, and we can talk about this in a bit, but the nostalgia and romance I had living in California and thinking about my time in Italy and how that influenced my, my belief in wine, my thoughts about wine, not my winemaking, but my thoughts about what wine is and what it could be for an American consuming population, which has, I think has a different perspective on wine than, uh, than the old world. So that was really important to me, and uh, and it, it just caused me to kind of think every day about why this product is important, how it makes sense to me, where we can take it, and 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 now we're here, you know, we're here at this whole concept of Web three, and I uh, I use I joke around, I said I missed Web one, I missed the Facebook, I don't even have a Facebook account, I missed that whole era, um, I missed investing in all of that, and. Um, I became part of Web 2 and the social aspects of it, but very minimal. But now Web 3, I want to be ahead of it and push forward. So I'm excited. Well, you are. Wine Spectator's Top 100 Wines features your Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Massacan Sauvignon Blanc. And you're not just involved in, in you know, the Massacan brand for everything that's very physical and very sort of like physical you're also involved in the digital element of what it is that you're producing which we will talk about in this particular episode because i think that it's really valuable to be able to take a deeper dive into you now you've glossed over a little bit on some of this stuff but sicily to napa valley how how did this happen what happened it was so you know i jokingly say i write business plans for fun um because it keeps my mind 
creative. It allows me to think of markets. And I think of everything as a pie chart. Who owns what piece of the pie? And how much, if I insert myself into that pie, how much of it I could, how much I could grow that pie or how much I can steal from others in that pie. Um, and so that's how I think about business planning. And so when I was in Italy, you know, working three days a week in, in a vineyard um, and then traveling on weekends, I needed, I needed to, I was had, I had stimulation, I had aesthetic and, and physical and emotional stimulation, but I wanted to still continue, you know, after 10 years of corporate America, having an MBA, I wanted to continue to stimulate my brain. So I started writing business plans and then, um, and then I just started looking at what jobs would be available to me in, in the wine industry. And I really couldn't find anything. So a few people I, I was introduced to in California said, hey, I know someone who works in the marketing department of this winery. They seem to sell a lot of wine. Maybe you should meet them. And then I met with them and had coffee. I came to California, had coffee. I just started to learn what was what the jobs were that were available in sales and marketing. And there weren't really anything that I was like, wow, that's something. What I didn't think. I was like, this is not the job I thought it would be. I want to work with small families, storytelling, marketing and sales and bringing their, their stories to life. Cause those are the things that attracted me to wine. And I wasn't able to really find that right position. And, and then, and I noticed that a lot of small family wineries, whether it be Napa or Sonoma, where I was based, didn't have marketing departments, didn't have MBAs on staff who were, you know, trained at Procter and Gamble for, you know, consumer marketing. So, you know, I was like, it was like, okay, this is small, this is interesting. So, I had to just kind of get a job, and that job was uh, was working working at Dumont with uh, with the gentleman who became my mentor, Andy Smith, and um, that was, uh, you know, that was like. I didn't expect the next steps to happen. I didn't expect me to end up in Napa. I was surely expecting to go back to New York City in January 2007 uh, with, a, with an updated resume and, and looking for the right job, hopefully within the wine space. But um, I ended up, you know, getting a job to work in the cellar. And I said, shit, yeah, I'll take it. Over the last few episodes, we've talked about laying in the groundwork or laying down the groundwork. Do you feel that that's what happened in Sicily that brought you over to Napa? Did you feel that being in Sicily, you needed to get a full understanding and a kind of super massive overview, if you like, a satellite vision of what the entire winemaking process and, and experience was like before you could kind of make your business plans and, and move closer to Napa? Well, I, I thank you for asking that question because this is really important to me. I, when I was working in Time Magazine and Sports Illustrated, I worked in editorial, I worked in consumer marketing, I worked in finance, and I worked in sales. The only thing I didn't do was print the magazine. And so I felt like I had, a, I could never, if I ever managed a group of people, no one except the people who produced the magazine on a weekly basis could say, you've never done my job. I've always felt it important to get my hands dirty and understand what people are doing, how they're doing it, so that I know the hurdles, I know the challenges, I know the opportunities, and I know how I can help. Um, so translate that to my experience with wine. As a wine drinker in New York, I was the guy who always got the, the wine list at a restaurant because I was the wine aficionado. So I felt like I could tell the stories. I felt like I can under, I understood the grape varieties. I knew where the regions were. I couldn't necessarily pronounce some of this stuff, but um, I was I was well schooled in navigating a wine list in a restaurant in New York City and not getting, you know, not feeling embarrassed, intimidated, or uh, taken advantage of on on dollars because I paid way too much for a wine that I didn't enjoy. Um, 
So I felt that my trip, my move, my kind of sabbatical to Italy and working in a vineyard was the, the last step of the equation of saying, okay, how is wine actually made? I knew the story behind it, but I didn't know how it was made. I didn't know how it was grown. I didn't know what soils meant this to which regions, to which grape varieties, to which flavors and textures. So that was my kind of the key that unlocked a lot of the, the next stages of my life because I felt I needed to, I needed that groundwork if I was going to be serious about wine. I don't do anything without doing the history and the research <laughs> behind it. So I am not someone who just says, oh, that's, I'm going to make wine from this grape. And I'm, I'm, and it's maybe a grape I've never tasted before. I would never do that. I always have years of, of, of you know, education, research, conversations, visits, drinking of certain things before I will actually go out and, and try to make that wine. I just feel like it's important to me to have that authentic sense of understanding before I venture into something. And that's what my whole concept of business planning is, is I want to build um, I want to build the foundation of what I understand and what I know so I don't just dive in and waste time, energy, or money or waste someone else's time, energy, or money by not having a proper product. I know what the answer is going to be, but is that a skill that you learn or is that something that's inherent in you? Your curiosity, I feel, knowing you a little bit as I do, that you are just a very curious man. Yeah. You know, you want to know how things are made, whether it's a magazine or whether it's a, a, you know, a bottle of wine. So is this, you know, have you had to self-teach certain areas based on that curiosity that you have, or is this just something that you went to college to learn? No, I, um, thank you. I, this is actually really, it's an important question. It's something that I believe can be learned. I think creativity can be learned. And I, and it would it just, two things in my life uh, I read uh, scientific journals on was that why I have such a bad memory and there's some scientific proof that says people who have bad memories just haven't been able to focus their mind and they have too many things going on. They're thinking too much so they can't remember. Something is replacing another thing in their mind so their memory is like I can't remember the stuff I learned about the Civil War <laughs> in high school and you know but 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 it's like I have it it's there I just need to unlock it. Um, and then the second thing I learned was the reason why creative people are creative is because they see more things than other people. They're exposed and they bring more things in and they allow them themselves to digest and to convert the, the things they see into what they believe is a creative opportunity. That is trainable. It is very trainable. And this is what I've done this. I've noticed I would... I would walk the streets in New York City and just and walk down and, and stare at the store signs and create sentences based on every store sign as I was walking down Fifth Avenue or Sixth Avenue or Broadway and then, and I would just and I would train my mind to see something and create something out of it, take it and, and convert it, and you know the bet and that a lot of the times that was you know late at night when after going out and eating and drinking and and I was walking to the train station or to, to go home to Brooklyn. Um, and I, so I make it a really big point to absorb everything, try to absorb as much around me as possible. I, I'm not one who spends time with it. I, it's more of the kind of immediacy of flash and then how I can quickly turn that into something. And that is super trainable and I've been doing that my entire life. I think that spatial awareness is really interesting 
And I think that that spatial awareness really comes to the fore with Masakan uh, from, from my experience of knowing your brand. It, it's pretty old now, though. It's growing up. So what's the, what, what, what's the kind of experience of Masakan for people who have never experienced the brand before? And, and how does it reach... Um, I mean, I know the answers to these questions, but obviously people are, might be coming to Mascon for the first time. Tell us a little bit about the brand. So it started in 2009 after a few years living in California. And those years living in California, I started questioning why this wonderfully uh, Mediterranean climate in, in the West Coast of the United States in Napa Valley uh, was so dependent upon a disconnected food and drink culture. We were making these incredibly beautiful sunshine-filled red wines and white wines in California, but they weren't necessarily pairing well with the foodstuffs that we were eating on a regular basis, and the climate wasn't necessarily pairing well with the being outdoors, drinking um, rich, bold, fruit-forward, potentially high-alcohol wines. So I just immediately turned back to my culture uh, and, the, and the culture of Italy and, and what I experienced living there for a year um, and said, I need to kind of bring that vibe to, to Napa Valley and to my friends and to my, to my household. Cause I, that's what I wanted. That's how I wanted to live. And, uh, and that's how it started. And it started with, uh, you know, started with 400 cases. And uh, in 2009, um, it grew over the last 12 years to 5,000 cases. And I realized at that point, if I'm going to continue to demand for the wine as this kind of Mediterranean style white wine made in California, that is comparable to not only the weather, uh, the Mediterranean climates of the West Coast or the, or the South or, or the East Coast, Southeast of, um, uh, of the United States, it's comparable to, you know, all, all flavors and tables and plates and dishes and restaurants and homes that are, that are looking for, um, you know, a, a, just a, a memory. And for me, Masakan is this memory of Italy. And, uh, and every time I, I think about it, I don't have an experiential, physical experiential place in California where someone could come sit down in front of, in a rocking chair and look out at a bunch of vineyards and be like, oh, every time I drink this wine, I'm going to remember this moment. I don't have that. I have to go into your psyche with Masakan and I have to get you to think about Everyone has a moment where they may be a honeymoon or a vacation or a trip to, you know, the, the south of France or the south of Italy or to Malfi Coast or to the island of Sicily or Spain to wherever you go. It could be, could be Miami Beach. It could be Catalina Island. It could be anywhere that you had a vacation-like experience with a partner or on a loan with friends, whoever that you want to be brought back to. That moment of coming back to this, uh, uh, this kind of this, this summertime vacation, relaxation, refreshing white wine, because it was part of the climate, maybe a rosé, doesn't matter. But it was, I could, with Masakan, I'm trying to draw that out of you because I don't have a physical location. I need to go into your psyche. I need to go into your nostalgia, your romance, your history, your, things that you wish to, you know, kind of play back in your mind with a glass of Masakan. And that has been my goal. And that's why if you go to my website, it looks like a travel website. It doesn't look like a, a website that you would like expect to see bottles of wine and meats and cheeses and, and foods and people clinking glasses. It, it, it's meant to take you away to another place. And, uh, and so that's been, cause that's what I wanted when I first started the brand. And now I've realized that um, more people out there want that as well. And I don't have enough wine to satisfy that. So I am uh, focusing 100% of my energy, efforts, intellect, 
work ethic, creativity on building this brand from, you know, from 400 to 5,000 to 10,000, maybe see how far we can go because, you know, I'm only distributed in 12 markets in the United States and, uh, and direct off my website and I'm sold out, you know, four months a year. So there's a demand right now and I want to continue to see if I can, how far that demand will take it. I want to take you a bit further with that demand and that growth of the brand because I went on a cruise last week in the metaverse. And so on that cruise, I was on a yacht. It was gorgeous. I was in the Mediterranean on this yacht, but it, it was in the metaverse. Love. And I wanted to drink some Masakan wines while I was there. I wanted to have that connection to Sicily and the Mediterranean to place me. So when you say you want to climb into the psyche, yeah. Web3 is the way to do that. Um, yeah. I want to know what you think about that prospect from the perspective of Masakan and obviously from the perspective of Dan, because your input is as like important because, yeah. the, you know, Masakan's your teenager and also... It is your brainchild. It yeah. comes from that place where you had your hands in the soil. Yeah. Well, this is just just do a real life example. You just gave a real life example, but let's look at the community of people who are currently, and you come from the gaming space. If you're gaming, if you're in Call of Duty, if you're in Fortnite, if you're doing, if you're in Roblox, and you're a kid, you're rarely doing that without snacks and a beverage next to you, whether it be a Red Bull or a Kool-Aid or whatever it is, but you are, you are living an experience through an avatar, but at the same time, you, you're, you're creating sustenance for yourself um, while you're living that experience. And, you know, you're going to, you know, you're on a cruise, you want a glass of refreshing white wine and that's what Masakan offers. And if you're there living that experience in the, in the metaverse or in a gaming situation or in a corporate retreat which is what is Web3 is going to probably, what's going to help everyone adapt to what Web3 can be is going to be the corporate business application of it. Um, you're going to want to have, you know, that social hour is going to be with, uh, people are going to be engaging with the beer. Your avatar is going to be as goofy and uncomfortable as you are in real life, unless you have, you know, liquid sustenance to kind of, to kind of loosen up your, you know, loosen yourself up. You need that drink, you need that beer, you need that whiskey or that glass of wine. So you can have that cocktail happy hour in the metaverse with your, with your corporate peers who you don't ever, you don't see that often. I mean, that's just normal human nature. Your avatar is not going to be you know, Tom fucking Cruise, it's going to be, it's going to be you as awkward as you are in real life. And you want that person to be, you know, not so awkward. You want that person to be fitted with great clothes and look great and slick, but you're the one still controlling that experience. So I think, I think that we're, <laughs> that's just a weird example, but I just think that that's something that we as a, as a community have to realize that, uh, you know, you're anything you do. I'm three, I'm, I'm chatting with you right now, having a coffee, and it's eight o'clock in California. And if we were in a coffee bar doing this meetup, I'd be drinking a coffee. So if we were in a metaverse coffee bar, I'd be drinking a coffee uh, in the metaverse coffee bar. And it's, um, it's super exciting to just think about how we can transpose our life into this kind of video Hollywood reality of, of a screen, even if it's just for, you know, just, you know, as David Bowie would say, just for one day, you know, yeah. that's, it's all I, I just, I think it's, 
we're limiting ourselves by by believing that it's something that we're skeptical about. But we're leaning on kind of parts of our memory because that improves the storytelling of what it is that we create in the places that we go to when we have this happy place. But Web3 is kind of taking that and, and the metaverse is taking those concepts, completely destroying them, screwing them up and throwing them in a paper bin. And and then what we're needing to do is be more immersive, but also be more inclusive. So with wine brands, we have to accept that sometimes we're not going to be in a situation where we can just, you know, literally taste IRL what yeah. it is, but we want to feel that ambience of what Massacam provides. How do you see that happening being somebody that obviously a company that's also creating those ambient experiences with Bar Termini, et cetera? How is that how how do you see that manifesting in the metaverse? Well that that is, you know, I'm not gonna be able to win everyone over. I'll you know, the majority of the wines I produce, say I grow to the 10,000, 20,000 case level, the bottles that I produce will be um, projected into the real world and people will experience them. And hopefully I can, you know, one of 10 of those or two of 10 of those are, I hit someone's, you know, kind of psychic nerve point that brings them to another place. Um, and, but if I can, if I can get that group of people to have, to then have the, you know, web three metaverse um experience they're not going memory you don't need to be eating or drinking something to have positive uh, visceral memories of things you but and if you see something a picture a puppy a baby um you know a television commercial you can have visceral connection and emotional connection to these things um, you don't have to be actually drinking a beer or riding a horse and smoking a Marlboro. You, I mean, those are the, you don't have to have those things in real life to experience them in front of you on the screen and, and to have an emotional connection with it. So Masakan is just that extension of if you've had my wine in real life, if you had just another white wine in real life, a Pinot Grigio that brought you back to that moment in Amalfi, that's all I care about. I just want the people who want that escape for a minute or 15 minutes or a day. And it's, it's just something that allows us to get out of our own space and, and, uh, and, and kind of just experience something emotionally uh, in a positive, positive, positive emotional impact. It's not going to be like a negative space. What you're saying is it's non-fungible. So, these instances and these memories, these experiences are already exclusive to us because we're all individuals and also we're the end user. So in my world, what you're describing here is an NFT with utility. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that we came to this point because this <laughs> got is there. super exciting to 20, me. 25 what minutes else, in. Yeah. <laughs> what else can we do? What can we give the end user beyond the exclusive or non-fungible experience that they're having by virtue of kind of being there and, and being an individual? Well, there's there's a lot that we can do. And it's not, you know, a bar doesn't necessarily offer that. You know, the Bar Masakan doesn't offer that. Bar Masakan offers a space for 
um, a space for gathering, a space, uh, a comfort space to your own, uh, you know, as you said, your own, uh, your own personal experiences. Um, I am, I believe that Masakan as an entity of refreshing white wine can live in a place like a concert or, you know, a concert venue or a, a ball game in the metaverse or, or a bar in the metaverse or, you know, or something that you can experience in, in a third dimension, web three, and then bring it back into real life because you have the access to kind of click a link, use your, your, your crypto wallet, purchase the wine, and then it goes into my, my host my, you know, kind of e-commerce system. And then all of a sudden, you know, you order the wine on Friday, it gets processed, it gets shipped out on Monday and it's in your home on Tuesday. And, you know, four days before you had this experience with the brand, um, but you may have never tasted it before. Now it's your trial. There's just, there's so many ways we have to break down firewalls and paywalls. Um, and we have to have, we have to have, a, you know, the, 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 the rails of, of easy access and transaction. And that's just, I think, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because I just signed up, and this is, this is a segue, but I just signed up for one password. And it's so, I, don't, I have no fucking idea how to use it, right? I'm like trying to use it. I'm trying to get all my stuff on one password. I'm trying to make it easier on my life. I'm like, why can't this be as easy as a crypto wallet? You know, the crypto wallet is you go to a, a website. It says sign in. I click sign in. It knows who I am. It allows me past the paywall. It gives me the access to everything I want. If they were charging me, they would just ding me and I would hit the, you know, yes, accept the charge. And it was a two-click process. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to set up one password. It's been like six weeks and I still don't have all my passwords in there. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, crypto wallet is like easily integration. You identify that you have a wallet, boom, boom, boom. That type of like easy pass to the future of... Um, mobility through websites and social media and Web3 blockchain and transactional purchases. I mean, the closest we have right now is, you know, a lot of this one-click shopping like Amazon built years ago or Shopify has today, uh, Apple Pay has today. That's no different than, you know, al you know, aggregating everything into one place, which I believe the future will be this, this crypto wallet that has a, a tran transparency and transactional value. But it won't just be for currency. It'll be for my access to, you know, the Masakan website. And instead of putting in your password and saying, I'm Dan Petrosky, um, I can't remember my password. <laughs> what was it? And then it's like, no, you have access. You're in. We know who you are. We know your wallet address and, and you're connected now. Now you now you get everything. Um, and it's just e the ease of, ease of mobility. With uh, with Web three platforms, I think people haven't realized that yet because people aren't there yet. And when they see it, they're going to be like, "Oh shit, I don't have to remember four hundred passwords anymore. I have spreadsheets of passwords in like so many different Dropboxes. I don't even know what I, I don't even know what they are anymore. It's terrible. That's why I'm trying to I'm, figure out. I'm going to hack you after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> How do we apply this methodology to modern winemaking, therefore? Um, so the, the, so this I think ability the, to, to fly through and flow through, how do we apply it? I think it's for consumers, it puts us, you know, I, um, I just uh, sent a message on WhatsApp to a buddy of mine in Piedmont in Northeast Italy and uh, friends are, were planning to do a little honeymoon there and I wanted to touch base with him on timing and other things. Um, he is uh, launching his own wine brand 
in Tuscany, and, uh, excuse me, in, in Piedmont, and uh, his wines are in barrel and aged. I'm like, I wouldn't have a chance to taste them, but if I had the ability to go transport to see him and spend time with him in person, you know, overlooking the landscape and him explaining the vineyard, the slope, the aspects, the soils, everything. I've been to, uh, to Piedmont before, so I know what a lot of that is. But I, and so I would be able to absorb that information, even though it's done virtually, a lot better than if I've never been there. But if I've never been there, it's still an exciting adventure. So I think this ease and ability to, to flow and to transfer in this kind of multi-dimensional world is going to be important because not everyone could come to Napa Valley. Not everyone flies across the country, rents a car, drives two hours, lands at a hotel, uh, spends three days. They might be able to afford that maybe once or twice every two or three years, not every month, twice a year, three times a year. But there are so many people who were so in love with Napa Valley and the experiences that they've had there that they've connected on a virtual basis with me, with with my peers in the industry on a regular basis, on a Friday night, a Thursday night, a Sunday afternoon, where we've done a virtual experience. <clears throat> and I just think that this is going to make the, 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 the blockchain and Web3 is going to make that experience so much more um, uh, immersive in a way that you actually, you can do it on your own without someone having to lead you there or through a Zoom presentation. You're going to be able to do it on your own, on your timetable. You know, the, the internet's open 24-7. Businesses are not. And I think that's a really important thing to understand is we try to expand our reach and our branding beyond, you know, nine to five and beyond, you know, California to New York. And we want to be a global. Everyone talks global, but acts local. You know, there's, there's a positive thing in that if you're thinking environmentalism, but there's a negative thing in that if you're thinking branding. Um, so this is an opportunity for us to kind of be open to the world. And I think that trans, you know, that transportability, that's a word, is, um, is something that I'm excited for because, you know, the bar masakan is, is always open. Yeah. I, and I like that, but I also think that we can do so much more with utilizing this and pivoting this technology into life cycle management and product life cycle stuff, supply chain. I mean, I, I've worked quite con considerably in the luxury industry and it costs a lot of money to FedEx something over to just check a sample when you could be using digital tools to be able to do that for you. Having meetings in Zoom, honestly, after the pandemic is really old hat. Why aren't we having meetings in Decentraland? You know, why aren't we meeting each other in Avakin Life? And I think that that, for me, is something that I'd really like to see leverage into the winemaking community because it is a place where people have to be, whether they're making wine or whether they're tasting and buying wine. Yeah. So we did recently, uh, I was part of uh, one of many uh, speakers and moderators of this Wine Green Future um, uh, conference to talk about you know, how to environmentalism in, in 21st century winemaking and how we're going to use wine as a tool towards you know, saving the planet, whether it be from viticulture to packaging, et cetera, et cetera. And we spent, you know, the organizers spent days and weeks and months getting panels set up and having them film videos in their vineyards and, and talking about like why they're, you know, what they're, 
you know, their, their studies and their R&D and their, you know, their, their good works towards environmentalism. And then they spent hours putting all these together and then creating these 45-minute videos. So then you go and then watch these pre-recorded videos. And yes, it's a gl the globe is, is on a different timetable. So, you know, <laughs> we're dealing with it right now between New York and London, in California and London. And, but it would have been really cool Instead of me having interviewed someone from Chile and from Portugal and from Italy, if I could have interviewed them in a virtual space within their own domain, within their own vineyard, within their own region, as opposed to me sending them a list of questions in which they had to answer in a seven-minute video. Um, that's still, to me, that's Web 1.0 to me, right? You know, that's so, you know, old school. But it's the thing that we... We're still we're breaking down those walls. We would have never have done that five years ago. We just wouldn't have had the fucking conference. You know, it would have been like, oh, come to Portugal for the conference. You can't make it. You can't make it. Um, but we were able to do it in a, in a more global space today. But we did it in a way that was the technology was available to us. And the ideas were basic and simple. And we were able to do it. But there's so much, you know, 10 years from now, that conference is going to be so more virtually integrated in a way that makes you makes you feel like you could you, you were there i i did a fantastic uh, conference just recently which was hybrid so the conversation was taking place in a lounge at the world economic forum but actually everybody was inside decentraland asking questions so the questions were being being fielded from avatars which I thought was frigging amazing, to be honest, because it felt like it was incredibly progressive, even though we were in a space that is incredibly traditional with financial institutions, you know, philosophies that seldom become anything. This was actually tangible. And I really sort of felt, you know, with making Wine in Web 3, especially with Cuvée Collective, it just felt like, hey, hang on a minute, we've tapped into something that's really exciting here. We should be doing more of this. No, the way you described it, I think of auction houses and I think of, you know, the 20 people sitting on the phone talking to the, the buyer on the other side, taking bids. You know, some of those people want to remain anonymous, but some of them might want to just project, project, project themselves into that room and be like, put the paddle up um, yeah. as an avatar. And I think of it that that is a simple way to think about the art business uh, and how they're you know going to have a virtual um, experiences and I still remember, you know, going through Decentraland to go see um, Salvador Mundi, the Leonardo painting that, that yeah. uh, uh, Sotheby's London put on display, and they kind of tried to build the the, the the virtual metaverse space to look like their, you know, London offices, and like get to walk through the hallways and get to the place and where the room was. It kind of was represented in real life, and you got to see this thing up close. Yes, it's on my screen. I couldn't reach out and touch it or throw a cake on it because it was my computer, like the Mona Lisa. But um, <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. That was hysterical. Um, but uh, but no, I just I like that experience. I wasn't going to get to to London for that experience, but I was able to. I feel still comfortable that I had you know, a, a good enough emotional reaction to me walking through Decentraland, through the Sotheby's uh, London location, seeing that painting from different angles and, and being like, okay, I get it. I mean, I would, being in the Louvre and the energy of standing in a room at the Mona Lisa 
you're still seven feet away from it or 10 feet away from it, it's still behind plexi. It's still, you're, you're, the, what you're experiencing is a physical thing that has historic value, hundreds of years of historic value, and the energy of the people who all want to be there. But at the same time, I don't want to be in a, that room with 80 people snapping pictures. Like that's, I mean, that the personal one-to-one relationship to me you know, in a metaverse like experience would probably more would be more emotional than actually being in the same room with something I can't get close to anyway. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's the difference, isn't it, between looking at a JPEG on your monitor and and saying, Oh yeah, it's the Mona Lisa as opposed to, as you say, walking down that corridor in Sotheby's, yeah. getting really excited about what it is you're going to do. That, to me, is the essence of what the metaverse should deliver. So it should deliver, because we're going back to what we talked about earlier, um, uh, Dan, we're talking about the experience of the of the experience, you know? We're talking about the feeling, the thoughts, the where was I when JFK was shot, you know, that 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 type of thing it goes back to a part of our sort of hippocampus or, or whatever, where we just call back that memory and think, oh yeah, it's all come into focus now. You can't do that with the JPEG. And I think that's why the metaverse and, and more tangible NFTs that give us actually something, whether it's a, a bottle of wine that has a kind of animated cork popping or pouring or whatever, connects us to that place and to that space. And and that's why I think that 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 Web3 and the metaverse, NFTs offer us so much more utility for the future in a way that if we just got to rely on Zoom again, I think I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> if we're just going to do things, I, I, I do think that they're, they're like viable for the time, but we also need to try to be as digital as we can possibly yeah. be. Rather than doing what we're doing now, next time I want to talk to you inside a metaverse. I really, really want to do that. But why do you think, and, and how do we get over the resistance in the winemaking community? It still feels very traditional. You've got a friend that's in Piedmont. So you're actually, or, or he's actually discussing with you and having conversations about things that are tangible in a kind of Web3, hyper, real metaverse format. So... How do we join these dots for the winemaking community in Napa Valley? It's it's not our own problem. It's a it's a it's a global problem. I mean, if you look at the statistics of who owns crypto wallets, who owns NFTs, I mean, the numbers don't even add up to one percent of the total population. Um, and so we are still scratching the surface of it. And unfortunately, the news, you know, jumped down the throats of NFT in a in a way to promote all the things that were happening that were all JPEG based and they were all, you know, from crypto punks to board API club to, and, and if someone looks at that and says, what's the value there? I mean, I mean, think about how, think about that whole, that decade long periods of people saying my kid could paint a Warhol or a Picasso or a Basquiat. And there was like a whole backlash for decades with the art marketplace, with modern art. And, um, and I think that we're we're now seeing that same backlash against this this you know not only cryptocurrencies but this is the output of cryptocurrencies and blockchain is this this you know board ape or this crypto punk or whatever as opposed to understanding the technology behind it and I think that's I think we I think the the marketplace got off on the wrong foot 
Um, they were using NFTs as a means of showing transactional ownership, and they were, and they were using the simple generative art or, or cartoon art, or or because a lot of the community was tech based, and a lot of the community spends time on Discord and gaming platforms, and in you know in, in Reddit, and it's like not they're not the a community they're sitting spending time in the Louvre or or the British Museum and looking at really super fine art, and because those things become popular, you go to a place like OpenSea, which is so rich with so many amazing artists, diverse backgrounds, diverse locations, diverse cultures, with beautiful art, but you just get thrown at the the, the tip of the, the pyramid, the tip of the spear, which is all this kind of, you know, generative, hyped, you know, 1,000 owners of 10,000 board at Yacht Club uh, kind of entities. And I think I think the, the marketplace has got bad, a bad, a bad start to convincing people that this is something. So when when a winemaker whose job is agricultural and spends time farming and then making manufacturing and making wine in the cellar and it's everything they do is so physical to the touch and to the senses, they have a hard time disassociating themselves with like your sensibilities are no longer at use when you're sitting behind a computer monitor or with an Oculus on or in a, in a virtual space where you can't feel, touch, or taste. And I think that is something that that's not a winemaking problem. That's a human problem that we're this industry is going to have to overcome um, to make that happen. And you need to tap into the nostalgia, as, as what I'm trying to do with Masakan, the nostalgia and the romance and the emotional connection to give them that one experience that they can relate to and say, oh, I get it now. It's not about, it's not about drinking a glass of Masakan together or my friend's new Nebula or my friend's new Barolo together in the metaverse. It's about knowing what Nebula smells and tastes and feels like, but getting to spend time with that person when he's 6,000 miles away. Yeah, that social aspect is really important. And one of my like key like navigational tools is knowing that the future doesn't belong to us. It belongs to young people. And lately, wherever I've been and whatever I've done, I see young people drinking wine, enjoying wine, knowing wine, but not necessarily understanding wine. And I would love to be able to see how the future rolls out for them like a carpet to kind of educate them in the same way that you've been educated by spending that time in Sicily. You know, I want it to be a little bit like what I do with art and luxury is an education process to drive people towards understanding that this future belongs to them. These products belong to them, but that it would be great if they understood where these things came from so that they can carry on in the future, delivering the high quality and standards that we've always laid down for ourselves when we're creating products. And and the wine industry, going back to one of your earlier questions about how can we get the wine industry to adapt, to evolve to a new future, this is still an industry that sells wine door to door. We have, if you know, people come to our door, they sit in their house, they taste our wines, they buy it, they leave. We have sales representatives through third-party distributors who go to restaurants and retailers. Sometimes I go to restaurants and retailers, pour my wines for them, tell them about the wines, they taste the wines, they decide whether or not they want to buy it. We are still living this 40, 50, 60-year-old version of the American, the international salesman. You know, the person who has the the brown suit and the, you know, kind of 
leather-worn shoes and a suitcase, and they go door-to-door and try to sell something. We're still living that world. And part of it's because we are, um, it's a diversity of product. You don't have to go to a chef at a restaurant and show him your 20 different tomatoes. There's only 20 different tomatoes. There's not 2,000 or 20,000. So the chef understands what the tomato is and how the tomato is going to build you know, the greater part of the dish. Um, but for wine, it's so, it's such a very strange, it's so diverse, it's so complicated. And I think to get to your point about this education, um, we're not, the wine industry just puts out education and concepts and text sheets and information because they think that's what people want to know. They think that my space, the, the ground that I, my, that dirties my boots and, uh, you know, the, the sunshine that ripens my grapes and all that, that people want to know that. Yes, some of them do. Small percentage of them do. You know, I think we've done a really poor job of meeting people where they are and giving them the information that they, they, they can use in their daily lives. I say this about my brand, and this is relevant for all brands all over the world. No one wakes up in the morning thinking about Masakan except for me. And if you can put yourself in that perspective, you will have a better understanding of how to market. Because right now everyone wakes up, they're thinking that their brand is the, is the best brand and everyone who is a Masakan buyer is, wakes up every morning thinking about the Masakan wine that they're going to drink tonight. That is so not true. And it's not true about the clothing you wear, the shoes you wear, the, the, you know, the, the stores you shop in, the produce you eat, the restaurants you go to. No one wakes up thinking about that. And once you start to realize that, then and you start to put yourself in the position of the consumer, your end consumer, your targeted goal consumer, you can start meeting them where they want to be. And sometimes they might want to know where the location of your vineyard is. Sometimes they might want to know the weather and why it impacts the flavors of your wine. Sometimes they might want to know. Sometimes they just want something delicious. I will, I will give an example, and this is incredible, and I'm going to use names, unfortunately, so if these people get upset with me, I'm, uh, give me a call. Don't call Kelly. Um, I had the really good fortune of spending time with, um, with Bill McKibben yesterday and today and tomorrow I will be. And Bill is one of the icons, legends. He's done so much great shit for the world with, with climate, uh, and climate awareness. He wrote his first book in 1989 called the end of nature. Um, and I had a dinner with him last night at, you know, a winery just down the road, right behind me, um, called Spotswood, one of the greatest states in Napa Valley. And I'm driving Bill to the dinner and I was telling him about all the great work Spotswood has done from organic to biodynamic certifications to zero waste to B Corp to all these things, like amazing. Like they are the model of any winery in the world probably head and shoulders above everybody with regards to thinking about generational farming at its optimal preservation and sustainability. And Bill, <laughs> nobody says, this is a guy who would sit there and go, holy shit, this is like, I want to meet these people. And like, he was going to meet these people. His first thing he said to me was, are their wines any good? I mean, I, mean, I was like, uh, yeah, they're kind of delicious. Um, you know what I mean? So this is, like, this is, this was, at the end of the day, you have to realize that any brand, I'm not talking wine here, any brand has to really meet people where they are. You're thinking you're taking this icon, this legend of sustainability and climate action and activism and, and, um, 
<laughs> and awareness and education to a place that is the pinnacle of what the wine industry can do. And he, his initial reaction was, is the wine any good? And that to me is how, if you can, if you can absorb that and, and understand where it's coming from, don't get pissed off, get excited about the opportunity of how you can tell your story and understand that every, every story you tell has to be different. You cannot tell the story about yourself. Um, you tell the story about yourself, you're going to lose people right away. If I had the opportunity to have an hour with you every single day, I would walk through broken glass and salt to do that, Dan. I've literally had a blast. Awesome. Everything that you say is absolutely spot on about everything. And I'm not just talking, I know that we've like had a conversation about wine for Wine and Web 3, but also it applies to literally everything that we're doing like in life across the border products, everything that we access and everything that we do. Do we like it? Whether we're talking about art or whether we're talking about the type of shampoo brand that we buy. It's so yeah. important. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for spending no it with me today. Well, that was incredible conversation that I just had with Dan Petrosky. And don't forget, the conversation's not over. We'll be back again next time, discovering more exciting conversations in this entire discussion about the future of wine in the metaverse at Wine in Web3. We're looking forward to digging into a lot more over the next few episodes, so please don't miss out. To keep in the loop of everything that we're doing at Cuvée Collective, why not take a look for us on Discord, Instagram and CuvéCollective.com. See you next time.